The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. Welcome to Beside Still Waters. This is our moment when we go into God's presence with the intention of allowing the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts by the Word of God. We want to frequent ourselves in God's presence throughout the day, ideally, because when we draw near to God, He promises that He will draw near to us. And there's no limit on how often uh, we can elevate our hearts to be in His presence. We are witnessing the transformation of our society uh, as it pertains to social norms, and it clearly represents a decline in the Judeo-Christian ethic and moral standards. And, And that's what we are addressing today. Not only the decline of the Christian in his walk with God, but the way back to God. People are waxing creative in expressing spirituality, but the spiritual norms are devoid of a fear of offending the living God. Holiness, moral purity are excluded from the public and private dialogue. Most alarming is the fact that immoral practices have become mainstream insofar as biblical standards are concerned. The believer, the child of God, has become immersed in this moral quagmire and very often lose their way from God's presence and have difficulty finding their way back to God. Spiritual decline has a standard template and it is etched throughout the pages of Holy Writ. And typically, this decline begins with a departure from the living God and then runs the natural course of profaning the things that are holy in the sight of God. People often pass judgment on the kind of pleasures we're engaged in, and this becomes a sort of measuring rod of our spirituality. If we are engaged in acceptable pleasures or activities, then people uh, sort of esteem us to be in right relationship to God. I don't agree with this assessment. From my perspective, in reality, this decline begins with the person himself. That believer profanes himself. This is uh, closely followed by profaning his walk with God. And that 
is closely followed by profaning the things that are associated with the spiritual walk. For example, firstly, God's presence is not enjoyed as before, nor is it counted as necessary for a successful, morally clean, biblically-based life. Secondly, time alone with God and in His Word is often reduced to a chore. Thirdly, personal associations are changed so that our social circle then reflects the new values we are beginning to embrace. These values are often contrary to the mind of the Spirit of God and will of God. Fourthly, the people possessing our affections do not stir us to deepen our spiritual lives in that they share similar values and worldviews that are typically anti-God. Having strayed in this manner, it is difficult for the Christian to find a way back to a wholesome, holy, spirit-filled, spirit-led lifestyle. The Christian is often overwhelmed with guilt and as the scripture says, a fearful looking back at pending judgment. The awareness of one's personal apostasy fills the mind with remorse, settling their souls in a sort of spiritual quagmire. And so before I address what it takes to establish a resumed walk with God, let us ask ourselves, what does my life exhibit that clearly indicates I have relinquished the basic fundamentals of the Christian life? Let's start with the person of the Godhead himself. There is little or no urgency to be in God's presence and seeking grace help, or direction. There is no, there's a little or no relish to hear from God in his word. And there is a, uh, a negative evolution from sacred moments in meditation and uh, the times that we do spend with God has sort of degenerated into a ritualized practice. And then lastly, uh, we don't entertain high notions of the person of the Godhead. Sometimes, and I have met Christians who are embracing a new age type of metaphysical paradigm that explains how the universe and spirituality actually functions. But it is contrary to what we learn in the scriptures. The second category is in relationships. Relationships. Again, we are examining uh, just the basics that a Christian can examine in their own lives and ask themselves, am I off course? Well, in relationships, we find, or that Christian who has left the narrow way, 
find themselves exchanging and embracing new social connections that support an evolving worldview that's not biblically based. Now, the relationships that they form may be in person or in social media or sometimes in written form. And I say relationships in written form because now uh, a new paradigm is being embraced and the, the reading material that supports their new worldview are the sum and substance of what is being consumed in that soul. Secondly, as far as relationships are concerned, that Christian that's off course is reestablishing new relationships very often in marriage, dating, or other social dynamics in which in that social circle, that new social circle, the adherents embrace an anti-God, anti-Christ worldview. In other words, the Christian simply doesn't want to be around people who are endorsing a Christian worldview. Lastly, as pertaining to relationships, there is a declining dependence on the direction and enabling of the Holy Spirit, grace for living, reliance on God's presence for receiving answers to prayer, and that, I hate to say it, but apostatizing Christian begins to migrate to an evolving dependence on government as the source for basic necessities, for social policies, which might foster more dependence on government as the means and source that through which my needs are met. Government has its place. But when the disciples asked the Lord Jesus to teach us to pray, he said, as part of that prayer, Give us this day our daily bread. The sustenance that I need in this life comes from God. But I digress. When this, uh, uh, let's go to the third category. We mentioned our relationship with God changes. Our relationships to people and the types of things we consume to feed that worldview also changes. And then lastly, we sometimes find in the area of entertainment there's greater reliance on content that arouse the senses and stir the emotions rather than strengthening the resolve and the convictions necessary for a successful, God-glorifying spiritual walk. And that Christian also finds themselves relishing content that depicts this new or evolving worldview and values. There's a fundamental change across several levels by the time that Christian realizes, I'm not only out of the will of God, but I'm out of the narrow way. When this evolution from Christ-likeness and godly ideals moves to a godless or a popular belief paradigm, it is difficult for that believer to see the finger of God in their life, the 
print of God, the evidence of God. And what they begin to fear is God's judgment. And very often when they have gone off course, God's judgment begins to evidence itself in life circumstances. And these circumstances are designed to bring us back to God. Because we neither possess a spiritual mind or a life practice that is in line with the will of God. We are walking according to the dictates of the world. A case in point is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verses 6 through 8. King Hezekiah. After he took the throne, he reopened the doors to Jehovah's temple, and he resumed or exhorted the priests and the Levites to, to uh, resume the sacrifices and, and offerings which established the relationship with Jehovah. And then he proceeded to reinstate the Passover. And what he did was he sent a royal decree to the entire nation of Israel, the northern kingdom specifically, which included you know, those uh, tribes that had gone headlong after idol worship. And he presented the invitation to come to Jerusalem to hold the Passover because it had not been done in a very long time. Now, what is noteworthy uh, in his statement um, to the northern tribes it, it, that, that was part of this invitation is that he connected the invasion by foreign powers and the devastation of their national life and economy to their apostasy. This is what he said. He said, return to Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. So what he's trying to do is, is help them to see you are in the predicament you are because you have apostatized. You have left the presence of God and your walk with God as a tribal mandate and gone after idols. And although many survived the Assyrian invasion, yet the people did not recognize that their current state, their current plight was not if you will, due to forces that were more powerful militarily and economically, but it was because of their decline in forsaking a national walk with God. My friends, check yourselves. Crisis has a message from God. So King Hezekiah went on to say and make the connection between the moral decline and the foreign invasions, and he pinpointed that this was a result of spiritual decline. And he, he furthered this statement in same Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 7. He says, Be not like your fathers and like your brothers who transgressed against Jehovah the God of their fathers, and here it is, so that he gave them up to desolation as you see. What is he saying? You are witnesses of the judgment of God because of going after false gods. It was clear to Hezekiah what caused the national results, both spiritually, militarily, and economically. It was the decline. Again, it was the decline from the presence of God and walking with him. 
Sadly, when in this state of apostasy, it becomes all the more difficult to recognize the evidence of apostasy. Now, I'm calling it apostasy because any decline from the presence of God, any walking away, any cooling off of the passions for his presence, for his word, for walking with him, is apostasy. We have gone after something else. And this is why God has to touch our physical bodies, sometimes in creating ill health, or touch our finances in destabilizing our employment, or touch our relationships in creating excess disharmony. He has to touch what has now become more important uh, to us in order to get our attention and refocus or reconsider alternative measures for healing and restoration. And those alternatives is a return to the presence of God. God has to rock our world and shake us out of our apathy through trial. Let's talk about the spiritual man, holiness. Again, we're talking about the way back to God. What did King Hezekiah recognize regarding the uh, prioritization of actions leading us back to God? What did he see? Hezekiah's immediate action in the first month of his reign was to open the doors of the house of Jehovah. First month. And this is synonymous with the first step in restoring fellowship with God, a walk with God, resumed intimacy. You have heard me repeatedly say this throughout almost all of our, you know, almost 80 podcasts thus far. Intimacy with God. Uh, King Hezekiah's first exhortation was for the Levites, pay attention to this, his first exhortation was for the Levites to hallow themselves, make themselves clean. That's a euphemism for holy. They needed to get ceremoniously clean. And for us, that means a resumption of a walk in holiness. Now, I know many of us are familiar with this term, but I'm going to dig a little deeper. But reestablishing holiness as the best standard of our lives. This is the first step of coming back to God. Get clean. Get right. And Hezekiah was fully aware that for any believer, devotee, child of God, faithful Israelite, to come back to Jehovah, to come back from that broad way, that person, that disciple, must reestablish a spiritual standard that meets God's approval. The way it looks for you and me is, I must get right with God. I'm the one that has to get right with God. Or, in other words, I must stop, I must bring to an end any unholy practice. Or, this attitude towards another person that I might have that's wrong, that needs to be fixed. So it might be a practice or an attitude. 
But I cannot call myself a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and live in a lifestyle that is the antithesis of holiness, that is grievous to the Spirit of God, that quenches his working in my life. And whatever your circumstance, whether it be lifestyle, attitude, secret practices, in the end, it must be dealt with in order for the way back to God to be clear and without obstructions. It necessitates a complete cessation of whatever the attitude is, whatever the lifestyle, whatever the practice, an immediate cessation. Just as Hezekiah said, make yourselves holy. That was essentially the essence of his command to the, to the priests and the Levites. Get holy, get right. Listen to what Peter says in, in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, as he who has called you is holy. God, the calling of our Lord Jesus, the calling of the, the, the repentant sinner to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to embrace him as Savior and Lord. As he who has called you is holy, be you also holy. And look at what he says. In all your conversation, in all your conduct, in all your practices, in all your pleasures, in all of your anything, be holy in all your conversations because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And therefore, it behooves us, if I'm going to be reconnected in my walk with God, I must bring to an immediate end, the things that the Spirit of God has made me aware of that are simply wrong. The mandate to be set apart to God is priority number one. That's what holiness is. Holy simply means set apart, exclusively for, belonging only to. It is analogous, for example, uh, to the car that we drive. In a very base sense, our car is holy in that we possess the keys to start the engine and go wherever we would. And anyone using our automobile without our permission has created a moral breach. <laughs> they have used for themselves that which is fully dedicated for me and my personal use and purposes. Our connection with God through our Lord Jesus Christ sets us apart as a holy people. And as such, when we go astray, living in the broad way, in order to resume fellowship with God, it necessitates we reestablish holiness as the standard of our lives, which entails a full consecration to God for His pleasure and his purposes. In Romans 6 and 22, we are told, but now, having got your freedom from sin. Why? Because we have been crucified with the Lord Jesus. Paul deals with this in the first 12 verses of, of Romans 6. But, but now, having got your freedom from sin and having become bond slaves to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end eternal life. Bottom line is this. Now that we've been joined by one spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ, all that we do, all that we enjoy, all that we say, the way that we live, the fruit of that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has one standard, holiness. It has to be clean. It has to be for God's pleasure. 
plain and simple. My friends, having been crucified with our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been set free from sin's dominion, although sin still indwells us, our mortal bodies. But in that union at Calvary, we have been made slaves to God. We're going to be slaves to something, slaves to sin or slaves to God. There's no free person here. We have no rights or freedoms of our own to live as we please. Hard concept to swallow, but guess what? That's just the way it is. We are going to be slaves to someone, slaves to sin, slaves to God. Pick one. And so the outgrowth, the fruit of our lives must be that which has holiness stamped on it, separated to God for his pleasure. And the purpose of living must be in the attitude and spirit of holiness. That is, separated to God for his pleasure and purpose. And that, that mindset is generated solely by the influence, filling, and work of the Spirit of God in our lives. We do not live to ourselves. And we'll find out about this a little later on in our podcast. We are either slaves to sin or slaves to God. And for the disciple, holiness is not an option, but rather a mandate. Be holy, for I am holy. That's a mandate. Hebrews 12, 14. The writer exhorts, pursue peace with all and holiness. Here it is, without which no one shall see the Lord. You ever wonder why some Christians are really very unhappy? (laughs) It's sort of simple. I hate to simplify it, but it is simple. Because they're not pursuing peace, and they certainly are not pursuing holiness. Separation to God for his pleasure, for his purpose. And therefore, the evidence and working and witness of the Spirit of God in their lives is next to nil. So someone might ask, well, what should I focus on as a Christian? Well, God would have us to pursue two things. Peace. Peace with everyone. Now, you're not becoming a doormat, but you're looking for those opportunities to bring a a cessation to conflict and holiness. Our focus is on holiness in this podcast as the necessary Commodity, for lack of a better word, enabling us to find our way back in fellowship with God, walking with God. This is the objective of our living, to evaluate all that we do, whatever leaves our lips, whatever our sentiments are inwardly, whatever the fruitage of my life is, all must have as its end game holiness, separation to God, for his pleasure and purposes. A devoted, consecrated outgrowth and lifestyle that is pleasing to God is a life lived for his pleasure and his purpose. It is as simple as that. We are called, commanded, to live a consecrated life in every facet of life, every day, Seven days a week, four weeks a month, 12 months a year for the glory and pleasure 
of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter goes on in his exhortation in that same first letter, chapter 1, verse 17, and he says, If you invoke as Father him who without regard of persons judges according to the work of each, pass the time of your sojourn in fear. If you call on God, bear in mind, he's not going to take who you are into consideration. He's going to really evaluate what we do, what we say, how we live, our works. Therefore, it behooves us to live in reverence, fear of God. Therefore, if I call myself a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, a Christian, it behooves me to be fearful of offending a holy God on whom I call Father. I have today and the rest of my life to determine, to validate what a holy life looks like in every or any capacity, be it at home, at work, or, or just leisure activities. I, you, we belong to a holy God and it behooves us to live a holy life because we're going to be judged based on what we say, do, live, enjoy, etc. Now let's talk about the inward witness, Holy Spirit's witness. King Hezekiah exhorted the Levites to hallow themselves. And then he says, now hallow the house of Jehovah. And, and, and I want to remind you that the house of Jehovah is where worship and sacrifice would be exercised. The house of Jehovah is the place where people would bring, for example, their offerings for the work of the ministry. The house of Jehovah was the meeting place for the relationship with God, which extended itself into the preservation of the nation, protection from external forces, and protection from the natural disease-like forces of nature. And the house of God was the physical representation for the presence of God for the entire nation of Israel. And so in that economy, they displayed spirituality through the physicality of offerings and sacrifices, all of which pointed to a spiritual sacrifice that would be made on behalf of not only the nation of Israel, but the entire world through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Hezekiah recognized that the dwelling place of God must be cleansed. And so he exhorted the Levites uh, uh, to carry out the filthiness, the rubbish that was uh, accumulated in the temple. The Lord Jesus displayed a similar zeal when he overturned the tables of the money changers and drove out those who practiced commerce in the temple that was reserved for prayer, for fellowship with God. And now we know, based on all that he taught in Scripture, that God doesn't dwell in places made with hands. He performed a special work for the nation of Israel in displaying physical attributes of clouds, you know, the, the pillar of cloud by day, the, the pillar of fire by night, the Shekinah glory in, in, in the temple, and so forth and so on, to convince them, to give them physical evidences of his spiritual dwelling in the temple and sanctifying that temple as a holy place, a holy physical representation. And so the writer to the Hebrews, for example, in expanding this truth concerning the high priestly office of our Lord Jesus Christ, said this of him in Hebrews 7 and 26, for such a high priest became us holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and became higher than the heavens. The person of our Lord Jesus Christ 
as son of God, as very God himself, is higher than, than the, the, the heavens of the heavens. <laughs> okay? It cannot contain him, his glory. And so the nature and person of our Lord Jesus Christ as the son of God occupies a place of supremacy and glory that exceeds the very capacity of heaven to contain him. And that of the Father and that of the Spirit of God. So it's clear that the greatness of our God exceeds the place where he dwells. And that is heaven itself. God cannot be contained and limited to time, space, matter. Because God is spirit. God possesses omnipresence, which extends beyond time and space. And therefore, we have to adjust our thinking to allow for the fact that God is everywhere all the time. And so the writer to the Hebrews continues to expand on this topic concerning the high priestly office of our Lord Jesus, saying in chapter 8 and verse 1, that we have a high priest who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the greatness in the heavens. And the Spirit of God is using language to tell us that God cannot be contained in spaces. <laughs> Clearly, we have no capacity or ability to affect God's dwelling place in the heavens. Why? Because he's set apart from all creation. We have no influence or ability to uh, present any risk in profaning his dwelling place in the heavens. However, there is a dwelling place that he has also chosen as a result of the work of our Lord Jesus on Calvary to bridge the gulf between man and God. And that place is the human temple, where the repentant sinner, having trusted in Christ, becomes the living receptacle of the Spirit of God. The temple, the dwelling place of God here on earth is in the believer. This secondary dwelling place allows God the privilege of walking with us in all facets of our lives, but also affords us the supreme privilege of unbroken communion with God if we so desire. This, my friends, is the wonder and privilege of being a Christian, a living temple of the living God. And so this is what makes Peter's admonition to be holy as God is holy, a very serious mandate on the life of the Christian. This is one of the reasons why he, if you will, he, he, we have to pass our time of sojourn reverently, fearing lest we should offend God because he abides with us and lives in us and goes through all of life's vicissitudes as a very present God. He could not make himself more present and more near to us than to indwell us by his spirit. And so Paul now could write to the church at Corinth in chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone corrupt the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy and such are you. It basically, what he's saying is if anyone profanes this temple, the seriousness of our connection to the living God by his Spirit is noteworthy. And we ought to take it to heart. Paul was addressing rebellious conduct on the part of the Christians at Corinth. And as a result of this rebellious conduct, we are told in chapter 11, hear me now, that some of them are weak, some are sickly, and some died as a result of an unholy walk. 
And so he can ask this question, do you not know? Okay, that's what he's saying in chapter 3, verse 16. Are you not aware that your body is a temple that must not be corrupted? In other words, we must not profane this temple. No, we must not profane this temple. This doesn't mean that we must or, or must not be careful what we eat, physical food, that is. But we have to ensure that our diets are wholesome, of course. But it's more than this. It's more than what we consume. It has to do with our manner of life, the tenor of our speech, the very thoughts of our hearts. And so we profane God's temple by introducing unholy behaviors, lifestyles, as the standard of our lives. And Paul indicated that it is not food that makes us holy or unholy because it passes through our, our bowels, if you will, and, and is excreted. The Lord Jesus also alluded to this in Matthew chapter 15. Okay, He says it's what comes out of the heart that defiles a man. This is what makes a man unholy. The things springing from our hearts, and we make them, these things springing from our hearts, the standard of our lives, the standard of our attitudes, the standard for our pleasures, and it becomes the ongoing basis for which we live. And so Paul, for example, addressed schisms in the church. Believers at war with one another, open conflict. And Paul addressed forbidden sexual lifestyles as there was one who was in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul addressed other attitudes of the Christians at Corinth that they are mandated to walk with God and to be mindful of their behavior. However, today we can sort of fast forward in our culture. We have Christians living in a multitude of sexual liaisons that are expressly forbidden in Scripture. Add to that there's a pursuit of wealth and physical pleasure by those who claim to be Christians. And this detracts from the mandate of holiness. We cannot say, I am walking with God and living an immoral life. It's a contradiction of the greatest sort. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul wrote, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? I don't belong to me. We live that way, but we're fooling ourselves. None of us has the luxury of doing as we please, living as we please. We rebel against the living God by taking the control of our lives and doing or saying or practicing lifestyle that are grievous to the Spirit of God, and we think we will be blessed in spite of these choices. It is not so for the Christian. Paul addressed this in chapter 10 of the same letter when he showed that <laughs> Israel, I think it was in Romans, pardon me, that Israel was baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Yet, although they were the people of God, God was displeased with the majority of them and that they perished in the wilderness as a result. And I think we find that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul went on to show the connection between their example and life choices. And this is a warning to us. Our Western culture in general has embraced a form of Christianity that allows people to live unholy, unclean, God 
dishonoring lives, practice sexual immorality while asserting they are in the will of God. And that, my friends, must never be. 1 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must, and this is important, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that, he has done, whether it be good or bad. And so, my friends, this is very important. The command, the constraints to live a holy life will be clearly evaluated when our race ends at the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ. No Christian escapes. Therefore, we are to heed the warning that we may choose to live as we please now in this life, but accountability is coming when we stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lastly, holiness in life and practice. Fruit. The last component for consideration is fruit. Fruit is the outgrowth of our lives, our beliefs. And to expand on the thought of ending my race at the judgment seat of Christ becomes... <laughs> A, a sobering moment. We need to consider, am I on the right path? Someone might argue, how do I know if I'm doing things as I ought to do and living as I ought to live? And the answer in its simplest form is what fruit comes from my life? What behaviors can I honestly say I have done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or what behaviors can I honestly say I have done for the pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or what can I say, <laughs> what behaviors can I honestly say were done for the good and blessing of my brothers and sisters in Christ or my fellow men in general? When we think of discipleship, we typically think of you know, discipling other Christians once they have been brought into the faith. And, and we attempt to exhort them as to their Christian responsibilities and we tell them what we think they ought to do, uh, ought to or ought not to do. Uh, and and what we have considered, if we consider carefully Paul's mandate to the church at Colossae, he pinpoints something very important to us regarding the fruit of our lives. And this is what he says, Colossians 1, 27 and 28. To whom God would make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the nations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we announce, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom to the end that we might present every man perfect in Christ. So we can look at Paul's statement in his letter to this church as the mandate to disciple every man, every new believer. But we often miss that these men, Paul and his cohorts, were living it out in truth and in fact. And therefore, when you are walking, when a believer is walking with God, one of the natural outgrowths of that life lived in the fear of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the power of the Spirit of God, will drive that believer to want to hold the hands of other believers and help them to grow in their walk with God and to manifest Christ-likeness in their walk and to do this in truth and in the wisdom of the Spirit of God. Paul and his fellow workmen relished in the truth of the indwelling Christ. 
This wasn't a new truth. But it was, as Paul says, the glorious mystery of God that Christ would live in me. And in that truth, he would empower me by his indwelling presence to live a holy life. That is the beginning point of living my life to end at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul stated in the same uh, letter, in a different form, when he wrote this, in 1 Peter 3 and 14 and 15, But if also you should suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed are you. But be not afraid of their fear, neither be troubled. And here it is. But sanctify the Lord, the Christ in your hearts. And be ready always. Be prepared, if you will, to give an answer to everyone that asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, but with meekness and fear. Oh, my friends, clearly, Peter is exhorting to live a God-glorifying life. A life that blesses people a wholesome life, a holy life, a clean, a morally clean life. And even if we are suffering for the sake of the cross with the right attitude, the right spirit, the right mindset, here is the key. It is mandatory that Christ be set apart in my heart as holy. He lives in me. This truth was not only uh, uh, embraced by Paul, but by Peter, the disciples, the men of old, the first century Christians. We are holy. Christ lives in us. I, you, we are the living, breathing, moving temple where the Lord Jesus, by his Spirit, resides in that great honor, it's, a, it's an honor that demands, that necessitates a holy life. But it has to be lived in the fear of God. My friends, I must live not wanting to offend the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes the banner over the life of the Christian. And that banner states Christ lives in me all that I do, all that I say, all that I am must be lived for his glory. Oh, Father, help us today to walk with you, mindful that you are holy, and let your presence, your power, your grace through the Holy Spirit fill our lives that we might bring glory to you and be a blessing to our fellow men, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining Besides the Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Besides the Waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of God's presence to receive guidance, light, and grace to live by faith. I hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of God. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast. To stay connected, please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.